The Cultists present Cinema of Cruelty. And on this continuation of the Cinema of Cruelty, we ask the question, what happens if brevity is not your strong suit? What happens if that causes your podcast episode to run way too long, and your hosting provider forces you to break said behemoth of an episode into two parts? Would you dissolve into a metatextual insanity in your second intro? Gain a new sympathy for Peter Jackson and his sprawling three-part Hobbit extravaganza, or understand acutely that Kubrick's initial three-month plan for Eyes Wide Shut expanded into 19? Can we possibly talk about the same film for this much longer? Well, let's find out. Because we are now heading into part two of our episode on Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. So continue to sit back and or pause here and go listen to part one, as we turn our eyes back onto where we last left off, on that good old-fashioned occult orgy sex stuff. And a reminder that our episode safe words today are the morning after. All right, Benji, you ready to hear about some cult stuff? Because I'm ready to talk about some cult stuff. Well, that was a lot to tell me. Yeah, and I have even more to tell you about this cult. You ready to talk about this cult? You know... We are kind of fans of cults and cultists. I feel like a good cult, yeah. And this cult, being here at the literal center and heart of the movie in terms of its runtime, and then also just the thing that tends to captivate audiences. This is the thing that, even though it's not necessarily the focus of the meaning of the narrative, this is what audiences like to focus on, right? This weird, esoteric sex cult thing that's going on. And it is also where a lot of conspiracy theories about this film are born. This idea that somehow this film within its celluloid frames contains secrets and revelations on mysterious current cults and that Stanley Kubrick might have reached his demise because of these cults and these secrets that he unleashed. Mm-hmm. So he didn't, yeah. but go on. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yeah, no, that's, let's that's make really... that very clear. He didn't. So there. But let's go ahead and put some theories out to this thing that did not happen. Yeah. So if people try to look up what cult is represented in Eyes Wide Shut, you get a lot of different answers on the net. Yeah. Well, like I said earlier, the great thing about Kubrick is he can give you so many different details, and yet you still have some room to dream and interpret from his films. Yeah. And so I am here to tell you, once again, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to believe me, but this is the annotations that were thrown out there today. Why so many different people seem to think this represents a different cult is because this ritual is one, very general, and two, draws from a lot of different cults. So the... <laughs> Forwarding spoiler alert is it isn't just one cult, it's a whole bunch of them throughout the ages. But being the cultist lover that we are here, and then also being your resident anthropologist, I am here to tell you a little bit about some of the cults that it draws from. Of course, this is not all of the cults, but it's some of the major players. So, one of the big cult references that we have, not only in this scene, but throughout the movie, is the Star of Ishtar. Ishtar was a Babylonian goddess who then later gets sort of mixed and compiled with the Greco-Roman goddess of Venus or Aphrodite. So fertility and love and sex. It is an eight-pointed star. 
And we see this eight-pointed star not necessarily at this particular cult ritual, but we do see it embedded throughout the movie, particularly at Ziegler's Christmas party early on. He's got these big eight-pointed stars as part of his Christmas decorations. And we actually have that eight-pointed star embedded in a couple of other scenes. It's kind of a fun where's Waldo hunt of <laughs> where can you spot the star of Ishtar? So there's a lot of people that really like to grab a hold of that and talk about how this cult is clear a cult of Ishtar. There is also a symbol that people like to point out, which is the dude who's in a little red cloak, who is sitting on his little throne chair in the ritual room. Oh, the guy in the red cloak. Yes, I looked it up. He's referred to in the credits as Red Cloak. Yes, we're going to get to him later. But right now he's sitting on a throne and the back of his chair has a double-headed eagle that is crowned. And as Many have pointed out this is the symbol of the 33rd degree of Freemasonry, which is oh. the highest degree you can achieve in <laughs> Freemasonry. Freemasons! My grandfather yeah. was a Freemason. I remember he, when I was a kid, he told me like, yeah, I got so many degrees up, but after a little while, they get really weird. So I just decided to check out. Interesting. So maybe this is the 33rd degree of Freemasonry. <laughs> Sex orgies and he missed out. But... So there are a lot of people that are like, oh, this is clearly a Freemason thing. So who are the Freemasons? Well, they've been around for a very long time. They grew out of craft guilds in the early industrial ages, particularly the U.S. versions of Freemasons were in the founding of the American soil and industrialization and, and craft guilds. But the Freemasons aren't actually as esoteric or secretive as people <laughs> like to think they are. Membership is actually open to all males over the age of 21. Women can join an associated group known as the Order of the Eastern Star. So perhaps linking that back to the Star of Ishtar and a kind of folklore mixture uh -huh. here. All right, all right. Apparently, according to this one New York Times article I found that was interviewing a couple of Freemasons in higher up positions, allegedly how you become a Freemason is you have to ask. Apparently their slogan is, all you have to do is ask, because they have a policy of non-conversion and you can't approach people about it. But if you go up and you ask a Freemason or a Freemason society, can I be a Freemason? Apparently the answer is yes. I don't know. I haven't tried to go through this process, but that is allegedly how you go about being a Freemason. So it's not exactly your super elitist clandestine cult. Then we get into the Illuminati. Mm -hmm. The Illuminati tends to be the one that most people point to in Eyes Wide Shut of like, this is clearly some sort of sect of the Illuminati. And Googling the Illuminati, you can see that there are a lot of conspiracy theories attributed to this mysterious organization that apparently includes everybody from high profile celebrities to politicians to reptilian aliens. So what is the Illuminati? Well, the OG Illuminati mm. was actually founded by a professor in Bavaria on May 1st, 1776. Going back, yeah? Yeah, it was created because this individual, Adam Weishaupt, I don't know how to pronounce his Weishaupt. last name. I was going to say, German dude, uh, let me know. Yeah, Adam, I guess it would be Adam Weishaupt. Okay, Adam Weishaupt, sure. <laughs> He sure. didn't really like the power that the conservative Catholic Church at the time and the Bavarian monarchy had over the people. Mm. And so the Illuminati that went through a couple different name changes, but eventually settled on the Illuminati. They workshopped it a little bit. Yeah, settled on yeah. the Illuminati. 
It was developed with the intent to cast aside organized religion in favor of a new form of quote-unquote illumination through Enlightenment reason. All right. So the Enlightenment had started to spread across Europe, and they also drew a little bit on ideas expressed by some of the Jesuits and a couple of other kind of Kabbalistic practices, and then also the Freemasons, because the Freemasons were already around. So they're like, hey, sure. we like a couple of things you do. We mm-hmm. like a couple of your symbols. So These guys know we'll how to party. integrate Let's those. See what's up. They actually recruited heavily from the Freemasons at the time. They're like, hey, you guys already are down with this whole society membership thing, paying your dues. Do you want to come party with us? Because we're going to try to make this shit better. And why they were going to try to make this shit better was because their entire goal was to spread about the ideas of illumination and enlightenment and fighting against conservatism, the church, and the monarchy. And because of this, the current monarchy at some point got kind of pissed at Aww. the Illuminati and issued an edict, and this was under Carl Theodore of Bavaria, he issued an edict marking membership in the Illuminati punishable by death. Oh. And this happened in 1787. That raises the stakes a bit, yeah. We really only got about 10 years, a decade of Illuminati activity before the monarchy shut that shit down. <laughs> and to try to further suppress participation in this organization. People began to spread rumors about involvement in the French Revolution. Then they've been tied to a couple of other things, mostly as an attempt to discredit them and to get people to be against them in some capacity. But for the most part, historically, as far as we can tell, by 100% fact, when it comes to the Illuminati, is that it was this organization in Bavaria that lasted 10 years and then began to die out when it kind of came with a death sentence. It will, yeah, that will put a, a burner on your membership drives, to be sure. Yeah. And since then, there have been all of these rumors of subgroups that have been connected to the name Illuminati. And that's usually what people think of now in the contemporary age when they hear Illuminati. They think these really clandestine secret societies that are stuffed with elite, wealthy, influential people. Not saying that those are not out there, but I am saying that it is ironic that they are connected to the Illuminati in any capacity, whether by public perception or by their own decree, because the Illuminati, their goals were to, direct quote, oppose superstition, obscurantism, religious influence over public life, and abuses of state power. And this is pretty much the opposite of what we associate pop culturally with the Illuminati today as a secret clandestine society that keeps information covered up and tries to control the masses. Wow. (laughs) Illuminati wanted to illuminate things, right? It wanted to bring down state power. Oh, wow. There's just an irony there. It does make sense when you think about what their actual name is. So, Yeah. Yeah. They wanted to illuminate things. They wanted to spread enlightenment values. So, yeah, once again, not saying that there aren't little subgroups that popped up and were like, hey, let's try to continue the Illuminati. If they are doing that and they're using the name, they have largely misinterpreted the original message. That's all I'm saying. That's the thing is, it's interesting that the Illuminati of all cults and organizations and secret societies is the one that is the name that's been so prevailing in pop culture. Because... They're not even the most interesting of all of the secret societies, but I think it was this 
interesting attack spread in the aftermath from the Bavarian monarchy that really tried to smear the name of Illuminati that Mm -hmm. sort of had the opposite effect by making it seem really cool. (laughs) So it sort of latched on and people wanted to be associated with it. But by and large, the evidence that we have of what the Illuminati did and practiced during those 10 years they're not rituals that really look like this. So there's some symbology that might carry over. But once again, uh, the Mm -hmm. Illuminati doesn't seem to actually really fit that well either. What does seem to fit pretty closely, so what seems to be a big influence into this cult ritual is something called the Hellfire Clubs. Hellfire Clubs were super fun. All right. They sound fun. Yes, they were exclusive clubs for high society rakes established in Britain and Ireland in the 18th century, so in the 1700s. And they were rumored to be the meeting places of what they called, quote-unquote, persons of quality who wish to take part in socially perceived immoral acts. Okay, all right. Uh, We're getting into... Yeah, these members were often involved in politics and in high society, which is another reason I'm surprised that people don't associate, like, the modern conspiracy theories more with Hellfire Clubs and Illuminati, but whatever. (laughs) But... Neither the activities nor membership of the clubs, the Hellfire Clubs, were easy to ascertain, and the clubs were rumored to have distant ties to an elite society known as the Order of the Second Circle. So Hellfire Clubs are actually multiple different sects of Hellfire Clubs. This was a name that got ascribed to a couple of different 1700s societies later on. So the first one that we attribute this name to was formed in 1718 by the Duke of Wharton, and it was largely satirical in nature. It was a gentleman's club, which was known to ridicule religion. There was a fad that was catching on in England, which was a fad of blasphemy. It was- The newest thing. (laughs) Fun to engage in satire through blasphemy. And so this club was in some ways a little bit more of a joke, meant to shock the outside world than a serious attack on religion and morality. The supposed president of this club was the devil, although the members themselves did not actually appear to worship demons or the devil, and they called themselves devils, so it was like a whole thing, right? It was a whole performative act. They would hold mock religious ceremonies. They had dishes like holy ghost pie and breast of Venus and devil's loin, and there was a hellfire punch drink that we still have some recipes for lingering about. And I'm sure there are people who still did not get the joke. There were largely some costume party themes that would go down. The most common one was for attendees to come dressed as characters from the Bible. And this club came to an end in 1721. So from 1718 to 1721. So it was just a couple of years of just a blaze of hellfire, blasphemy, fun shenanigans. Yeah. And Wharton, by the way, would later become a super top dude in Freemasonry. All right. Some of the things that then maybe became these weird ritual things that happen at higher levels of Freemasonry probably were introduced into the organization from Wharton and his fun little penchants for fake ritual ceremony for fake ritual ceremony's sake. Then we have Second Hellfire Club. Sir Francis Dashwood. He also had a very similar structure where all attendants would come and perform obscene parodies of religious rites. 
they had these Bacchanal orgies, more or less, these Dionysian sex shenanigans that were performed like obscene religious rites. Sex shenanigans. It's, you know, what we all want. Yeah, they had a lot of fun. And what's really important to them, whether they were satirical or not, because they were kind of obscene parodies, but whether or not they were in it for blasphemy's sake or for the kind of kinky sex of it or just because they were bored, you know, we're not exactly sure. But their main motto was, do what thou wilt. That was the motto of the Sir Francis Dashwood Hellfire Club. That becomes an important phrase later with a man named Alistair Crowley. Ah, Alistair Crowley, reportedly the inspiration for Ian Fleming's Goldfinger. Sure. (laughs) He's the inspiration for a lot of things. This man... (laughs) He got around in pop culture history because he was a very specific, interesting dude. (laughs) Aleister Crowley is going to start his own religion of Thelma in 1904. And this religion will use the motto of Dashwood's Hellfire Club, do what thou wilt. He develops this religion and then goes on to form a couple of orders the it's the AA, but not Alcoholics Anonymous, a different AA, All right. and the OTO, the leader of which is going to draw heavily from Freemasonry symbology and a whole bunch of other stuff, alchemy, mythology, Eastern practices and influences, particularly in what he called sex magic. So a lot of Aleister Crowley's orders circled around the idea that magic and power could come from sex. So sort of like Schnitzler, Alistair Crowley was a dude who liked to fuck, and he fucked a lot, and he (laughs) fucked constantly, all the time, for the sake of the gods. Man, if you're fucking so much, you're upsetting Ian Fleming. You are fucking a lot, man. That's a lot of pipe he is laying. So yeah, basically in order to unlock this true will, you just have to have a whole bunch of, of sex. If it's a little bit more ritualized and sacramental, like... Cool. That's super fun. So sex is actually treated as a sacrament within the OTO and Thelma. All right. Yeah. The whole Aleister Crowley stuff was often, as were the Hellfire Clubs, often confused with Satanism. Although he did love that people mistook him for a Satanist. So he did really (laughs) encourage that. So to be fair, he was like, yeah, sure, Satan. Hey, are you a Satanist? I'm not, but thank you. Yeah. He's like, thanks, man. But in his writing, he doesn't actually believe in Satan He doesn't actually believe in any gods either. It's very confusing as to what he actually did believe in outside of Nietzschean philosophy of the true will. So there's not actually a lot of gods or devils or demons that come into Aleister Crowley or this particular ritual that's happening in Eyes Wide Shut. We don't really know what its purpose is. It doesn't actually seem to be unleashing any magic in Eyes Wide Shut or praying to any particular gods. So the people in this room might be the highest gods there are in this space for them. We will also visit that later. So yeah, overall, basically, this whole night just seems like this modern Hellfire Club, secular Crowley Nietzschean-style will-to-power ritual for ritual's sake or titillation's sake, plus the sex party that's going on. They don't seem to be worshipping any particular gods or expecting the magic to do much of anything other than self-indulgence and maybe striving towards this Superman status, more on that later, but by sight alone, we can't diagnose this as a particular known secret society or organization. Mm-hmm. So the very least we can say, the only thing we can really say here is that we have a group of elite rich dudes doing elite rich dude shit. 
So class stuff is very interesting in the scene. And that really becomes clear with the use of the Venetian carnival masks. Because now taking a sidestep from esoteric organizations to Venetian mask history, that why those were used and worn during the Venetian carnival is that it's said by scholars that covering the face in public was a uniquely Venetian response to one of the most rigid class hierarchies in European history. So at the time in Venice, it was a very, very strict social stratus and structure, mostly because of this thing called sumptuary laws, which regulated how much you could buy as an individual and what you could buy, which is kind of a a crazy thing. It's like very regulated capitalism. That's the most anti-American thing I've ever heard in my life. How dare you tell me that I couldn't buy something? I want to buy it more now because you said I couldn't do it. Damn it all. Yeah. Well, see, the whole thing was is that the mercantile class was on the rise. The middle class of sorts, this proto-middle class was Mm. on the rise. And that was a problem for the nobles, because Ah. if the mercantile class could afford all of the shiny, pretty shit that the nobles had, how could you tell when walking around on the street which person was the noble? People might not know that I come from an inbred family. God damn it. I need to put a stop to this. Yeah. And how they put a stop to it was the sumptuary laws where they're (laughs) like, you can only buy so much nice shit because real nice shit that belongs to us. Fashion and adornments were signatures of wealth and social status. And the sumptuary laws, the one time they were suspended was during the Venetian carnival, where people could don masks and dress as they liked, instead of according to the rules that were set down in law for their profession and social class. And this caused this weird masking, universal masking, where you can't tell when somebody is wearing the mask what social class they belong to. And this is actually what Bill is doing here, Dr. Bill, who even though he's a doctor, is part of the lower class, and he is sneaking into the higher ranks via this Venetian mask that he's able to dawn for the evening and yet they still kind of pick him out probably because his mask is not truly a venetian mask he rented it from a costume shop in greenwich village also he walked in really late like i said yeah he walked in in like hey guys what's going on he came in a taxi he didn't cover his face ahead of time he probably doesn't carry himself like an elite i think ziggler later on mentions they got a receipt out of his pocket that said who he was so yeah he wasn't yeah. good at covering his so tracks. So all of these things combined, he just—he didn't really try, right? He was not committed to sparkle motion. You got to commit to that sparkle orgy motion, man. You know, sparkle motion, orgy, orgy, motion, sparkle. Get back to me. I'll, I'll have a better one later on. Get back, get back sure. to me. Yeah. So, yeah, we have, I guess, over on the scene, the cult and what cult it is really isn't the point because it is an amalgamation of secret societal practices. But all of them have this one thing in common, which is a performance of ritual rites that don't actually connect to anything higher than the people in the room and that it does seem to be an elite group that is performing these rituals. There's still a question of what are they actually doing? Like, is this just all theatricality? Is it all for show? Because when the plague doctor comes to take this woman away, the implication is, oh shit, she's going to get ritually sacrificed. But is she? Or is this just like a high performance (laughs) art, right? Is this part of the thing? Are we showing this fever dream, the dark side of lust? 
I mean, the way that they talk to each other when she comes in. No, take yeah. me. I am ready to redeem him. I mean, this comes off as pretty goddamn theatrical. You can almost hear the Gladriel coming through Kate Blanchett's voice on some of those lines. No, I will redeem him. And you shall not have a dark lord, but a queen. Yes. And so, and even Ziegler later, when we find out he knows some stuff about this night, mm-hmm. is going to tell Dr. Bill, no, that was all for show. Girl, they <laughs> were theater. fucking with you, man. Come on. Yeah, because, <laughs> like, here's here's two things to consider. One, there's really no need to ritually sacrifice good snatch, right? Because... <laughs> She's there. That should She's be on willing. a poster or a t-shirt. There's no need to ritualistically sacrifice good snatch. Yeah, no, I mean, there's just like, what's what's to come of this, right? Because it does seem like a hollow ritual. So they're not getting any magic or, you know, godly divine will off of this. So like, why kill her? And on the eighth day, the Israelites did sacrifice their finest snatch to the Lord. Yeah. And that if they really don't want this guy to talk, it actually seems like... He's more likely to talk if he thinks a murder has taken place rather than just a sex orgy at a mansion. Because we're actually not sure. I did see a lot of people that wrote about how um, the ones that are a little bit more kind of Illuminati-based theories, Mm -hmm. this idea that these women are examples of beta kittens, I guess is a word or a theory of brainwashed women forced to participate in human sex trafficking, which... Hey, may or may not be a thing. I don't know. But we don't actually get an indication one way or another mm-hmm. who these women are. We do at some point get it told that she was a sex worker who was hired for the party. And so if that's the case, then this is just some commerce, right? Mm-hmm. They could all just be there as kinky fetishistic perverts. Because like I said, I've been to parties like this and no one was being trafficked. Right. We were just bored. Yeah. <laughs> or it could be an example of the darker side of human trafficking. But we don't actually have enough information to make mm. a deduction one way or the other. So the idea is that this scene somehow unveiled some sort of darker truth about the Hollywood elite that later Stanley Kubrick was targeted for. I push back on that for a lot of reasons, but the main one is just because, like, we don't learn anything about right. this cult. It's a mixture of symbols, and all we know is that they're fucking in a mansion, yeah. which is not illegal. Tons of parties are like this. We can't make any deductions. Thus, like, nothing's been revealed. This is all very occult. Also, if we're looking for a movie that has secret information about Hollywood elite sex cults, Stanley Kubrick really isn't the guy to go to for that, because like I said, the top Stanley Kubrick had not been in Hollywood or America at all since 1968. So maybe he saw something 30 years ago, but whatever that was is not relevant now. So yeah, he's not really the guy to be going to for info on sex cults in Hollywood. He wasn't part of that system at the time. Yeah. And as weird and fun and dramatic as this ritual is, the thing is, is that sexual abuse in Hollywood is a lot darker and a lot more troubling Mm -hmm. and a lot more mundane and thus more dangerous because of it than people wearing a bunch of cloaks and pretending to be balcony angels. Once again, not saying people don't have sex like this, because I've seen it. But it's just it's a good time, though. I mean. This is not yeah, like the mass dark unveiling that mm-hmm. people seem to think it is. So I don't know <laughs> if anybody out there is a 
die hard, this is some sort of secret sect of Illuminati theorist, go to our subreddit page and tell me all about it. Oh, yeah. I want to hear. I want to know. Awaken me. Get us there, guys. Give us your sex cult stories. We want to hear them. I never thought I would say that, but yeah, I kind of do, actually. So, yeah. I'll say it's not the first time I've said I want to hear all about your sex cult details. (laughs) That's that's my standard go-to. So I was going to ask as well, where in the novel, so another reason why it's hard to say that Stanley Kubrick is unearthing secrets is because most of what's in this scene is in the book, right? right? How does the sex party go down in the novella? He finds out about the same way, Nocting Gall says, yeah, I'm going to be playing at this other thing later on. And he goes over and he has to dress in a monk's outfit, which is a little bit different. And he gets there. The party begins. At first, it's very tame. Everyone's just walking around in monk's outfits. Uh, the women are in nuns' habits. And eventually, Nocting Gall starts to play. The women walk into the separate room and through the very large doors of this room, Fridolin can see the women take off their nuns' outfits, and now they're all wearing very lacy, kind of sheer clothing. And the men of the party then all take off their monk outfits, and underneath they all have these bright, colorful courtier outfits on, like harlequins or something. Normally I would say I'm not a harlequin. These guys... What do you take me for, Joe? (laughs) Deadfall reference. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. (laughs) You know, we'll get there one day, folks. Stay tuned, but neither here nor there. And they are all ecstatic and they run into the room and start dancing. And Friedland is just left in this other room by himself because he doesn't have the courtier outfit on underneath the monk's robe. And the the Austrian television version of this actually does a really great job of showing you how fucking isolated and alone he suddenly is. Because he's just one guy in this gigantic room in a monk's outfit and the Lone Ranger mask on, just kind of standing there like, huh, I really did not plan ahead on this. And the novel is very vague on what's really going on. It does describe that Friedland can see the guys dancing with the women and the women, some of the women are nude and eventually another woman comes up to Friedlin and says, Hey, do you want to go off into another room? We should uh, be doing something here. Also throughout this whole party there, Friedlin hears a woman's voice behind him saying like, you need to get out right now. This is bad. You should not be here. It's very much the same as (laughs) what we see in the movie. Eventually the other partiers, see that Friedland has not removed his monk's outfit. They come over and they say, sir, you, you doing okay? What's going on here? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Don't, I'm, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And then after another few minutes and another warning from the mysterious woman, someone comes up and says, what's the password for the house, sir? Uh, Fideli or uh, Denmark. That's the password in the novella. Denmark. Yeah. That's the password to get in. What's the password for the house? And it, proceeds the same way. They demand that he take off his mask. He says he's willing to satisfy anyone however they want. The mysterious woman comes forward and says, no, it's okay. I will redeem this man. Plays out much the same way where they say, are you sure you want to let him go and take the punishment for him? Because you know what that means. In this place, when you make a promise, you do not break that promise. You have to take full responsibility. And the woman says, yes, it's fine. And as Bill is being forced out, he sees the woman remove all of her clothing, sees her face for one microsecond, 
and just sees all the men rushing towards her. Friedland eventually is taken out, forced into a carriage that he cannot see out of, and is driven away somewhere, and eventually just left in a field where he now has to walk back to Vienna. Yeah, so it sounds like the novella was also drawing from either the Hellfire Clubs themselves or something like the Hellfire Clubs with the whole dressing like figures from the Bible or the clergy ideology of that religious blasphemy. Because as we mentioned, that was kind of the Hellfire Clubs deal. Well, many of them. It's all connected. It's like this is an adaptation or something. (laughs) So it seems like the short story is a little bit more, since it is this meditation in monogamy and fidelity that there might be a little bit more of a heavy-handed metaphor on the you shouldn't be here because he's trying to question whether or not he has it in him to Mm -hmm. explore outside of his marital bonds and the weird social shaming so i wonder if that can then be overlaid on the movie that this is a little bit of his nightmare of things that other people have in this excess and debauchery and revelry that sex is this taboo thing in his life and Mm -hmm. that women with multiple men and these faceless suitors is something that he's been very very anxious about and it culminates in this place where he's thinking do i want to participate in this debauchery dionysian debauchery as well and people are telling him you shouldn't be here Mm -hmm. or are you ready to strip down and join us and he he doesn't have it in him and so yeah so there might be actually a little bit more of a yeah monogamy fidelity metaphor happening in this party yeah. than even it seems there's a lot less focus on wondering who the hell these people actually are in the novella mm-hmm. i think because there is no ziegler equivalent character so there's no one to later on say do you know who the fuck those people were bill i'm not gonna tell you who they were but if i did you wouldn't sleep easy at night there's mm-hmm. none of that in the novella so really Aside from the investigation that we kind of see Bill going through here, it just doesn't really lead anywhere in the novella. And eventually Friedland just says, I don't know what the fuck was going on. Ah. He does seem to want to have a heroic stance on rescuing that woman who saved him. You can really tell that is the way he tries to cement his masculinity and his worthiness is this heroic act of trying to save the woman, which goes Mm. absolutely nowhere. But we'll find out later. Dr. Bill already saved this woman once, which is why maybe she felt compelled to Ah, save him back, as it were. Mm -hmm. So he already saved her one time. (laughs) Once is all you get with Dr. Bill. All of these masks, one of the things that it did remind me of is the Oscar Wilde quote of, man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. And that's kind of what we have here, right? We've got a bunch of people who are masked and we are seeing them at their most base trope desires and performances that it is a parody of elitism and false ritual and false Nietzschean will to power. It's like a whole bunch of stuff, but there seems to be a subliminal truth that's coming out the second that these men put on these masks, which is pretty great. All right. Oscar Wilde, he knew what was up. All right, so the sex orgy is done. The sex orgy has come to an end only because Bill gets kicked out. Because Feathers sacrificed herself for Dr. Bill. Feathers, she gets let off, and Dr. Bill goes home, Mm -hmm. wondering if his careless participation in the evening has, in fact, killed a woman. Oh, my God. Did I actually affect the outcome of something in this movie? My God. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet. 
<laughs> so Bill returns home. Right. And he hides his costume. Like oh, yeah. The marker of shame that it is. Oh, my God. Yeah. Gotta get rid of Alice that. Alice is in bed and she's laughing. Yes. She's asleep, but she's laughing. Sleep laughing, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And so he goes and he wakes her up and he's like, what's up? Yeah, what the fuck? And she tells him she had a dream. Alice has a dream in which it starts out in a deserted city. That her and Bill are stuck in a deserted city. And they're naked. And they're being seen. They're being socially shamed by invisible eyes. Sort of like Bill almost just was. Mm -hmm. when he was told to take off all of his clothes in front of this austere grouping of people. And then Dr. Bill, being the good guy he is, goes to find them clothes. But... She's immediately happy that he's gone, and suddenly she doesn't feel ashamed anymore. She feels sexy. And then the sailor is there, and the sailor starts laughing at her, and so she feels self-conscious for a second, but then she starts fucking the sailor, and she starts fucking all of these other people, and suddenly there's just a crowd, a surrounding crowd, and she's fucking people, and they're fucking each other, and basically she dreams of the party that Bill was just at. And <laughs> as he's walking by and sees her fucking all of these men, she finds it hilarious, and she starts laughing at him. And so this also goes back to this weird amalgamation of the red-headed woman, and how, in a subliminal way, Alice and Mandy and Feathers are all just kind of the same woman within this narrative. Because there's that question of, okay, why is she dreaming of the sex party? Is she psychically connected to this event? Is it woman's intuition? Is it a coincidence? Was she actually there at the party? We don't know. Because it's all just a hazy subliminal narrative. She got sorts. home really fast if she was at the party. That's impressive. Yeah, well, maybe she bounced when they brought him into the room to interrogate him. And she's like, I should probably go home. <laughs> <laughs> she saw that. It's like, oh, oh boy, I better. Hey, sorry, excuse me. Gotta go. I got. Yeah, bye. Okay. And she rushed home. Like I said, the most direct interpretation of she was physically a hundred percent there is one of the redheaded women. It's not the most common interpretation, but mm -hmm. once again, this is a movie that you can't just think about like that, right? You can't right. say that this is the 100% reality, this is the 100% dream. It's, mm -hmm. This novel exists in a weird middle space yeah. of both of those things. I dig it, yes. Alice's dream thematically is about the same thing as what is in the novella. The interesting differences there, though, are that it's kind of the same thing where they're at sea, actually, if I get I think the sea thing is in the novella and the ship crashes. They are stranded. And then Alice meets the Dane and they lay in a field together. They're making love, but they're surrounded by a lot of other couples that are having sex. And then off in the distance, Albertine can see Fridolin, who is being brought up on charges of some crime and brought to the princess of the land. And the princess of the land is a woman that Friedlin in real life was attracted to that he mentions at the start of the novella. And the princess says, you can be let go if you become one of my lovers. And out of fidelity to Albertine, Friedlin says, no, I won't do that. And looks over at Friedlin, waves like, honey, honey, I'm faithful to you. While Albertine is making love to this Danish sailor, Friedlin is then tortured, whipped, and, you know, just cut to pieces. It's the passion of Fridolin, basically. He is, like, whipped and tortured. He's going to walk up to a crucifix, 
about to be crucified. It's like implied. It doesn't say crucifixion, but it's really implied. That's what's going down. And Albertine begins running to him out of pity. He begins running to her, and they're running so fast they begin flying, and then they accidentally fly past each other. And the fact that they missed each other because they don't fly very well is hilarious to Albertine, and that is what causes her to be laughing when Friedelin shows up after his fun nights in Vienna. Curious. Yeah, I know. I, I wish they had incorporated a little bit of that. What a good aesthetic, I suppose. Although, also, that didn't happen at the party, and she's dreaming of the party here in the Kubrick version, so. So now, Bill is on a mission to figure out, what the fuck did I just do? Yeah, what was last night? Where is my car? He goes to the nightclub where Nick was performing. Nightclub's not open. Goes to a coffee shop, asks the waitress there, hey, do you know the guy who plays piano next door? Waitress says, well, I happen to know where he stays at. There's a lot implied there. Yeah. (laughs) Waitress, totally fucking Nick Nightingale, which we know he had a wife and children back in Seattle. So... Mm -hmm. Fidelity, man. It's a theme throughout. It's a problem for everyone in this movie. So Bill goes to the hotel and talks to the hotel clerk, played by the sexiest Scotsman to ever walk the face of the planet, Mr. Alan Cumming. Fuck yeah. Love him so much. Everything about how he is looking at Bill, talking to Bill, the weird gestures he has, the way he touches his face, just... He's so thirsty for Bill. He's so into him and it's so great. Alan Cumming has said in a lot of interviews that he auditioned for this role first in 1996, read for it six different times in both America and Europe. So he's like, do I have this goddamn part or not, guys? What the hell? They didn't film this scene until four months after they were originally scheduled to shoot it. When they finally do get to filming it. This scene that goes on for, I think, maybe two and a half, three minutes, took a week to film. And it's just Alan Cumming and Tom Cruise standing across a hotel desk from each other, talking back and forth a week, a fucking week to film this thing. Holy shit. Yeah. So he's all thirsty for Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill does pull, once again, the... I'm a doctor on him, flashes him his doctor badge. You see this? See this? I'm, that means I'm a doctor. And the clerk just looks like, ooh, a doctor. Well, gosh. Yeah. Oh, my. How well. <laughs> it works on Cumming. And so Cumming tells him all that he wants to know about Nick Nightingale, who has since checked out of the hotel. By force, it seems, two men came with him to his hotel last night and forcibly made him pack his shit and... They got out. That's all Alan Cumming knows. That's all we get from this scene. But it's important because Alan Cumming is in it. Bill then goes to return his costume rental. He finds that his mask is missing, but he pays for the missing mask. And as he's about to go, Lily Sabowski shows back up, the daughter of this Russian dude who owns Rainbow Fashions. As do the two men, the two businessmen that were there with her last night that seemed to upset the father before because he didn't like the idea that his daughter was a quote-unquote little whore and a slut. But now, suddenly he seems pretty cool with it. And that's because we learned that her dad has kind of had this change of heart where he's like, hey, you know what? It used to be in the old ways that my daughter only had value for as long as she kept her virginity and then could be sold or traded off at a later time at a high 
price point. We found a way to speed that process up. This is, yeah, this is the new world. We can actually make money across the board if we just like pimp this kid out. So she's now this sex trafficked individual, but she actually seems pretty chill with it. So in a way, I guess like it's, it's supposed to be dark and disturbing and in some ways it is, but he was going to kill her the night before for being sexually promiscuous. So I guess now trafficking her is like progress. I... Neither here nor there. The freaky thing that you get from the novella is that Friedelin really clocks that this young lady is not fully mentally developed. She, even though she's a young woman, she appears to have the mind of a seven-year-old or something along those lines and always refers to her as the Pirette. Never by her actual name, never, you know, who she is, but the young Pirette came out again dressed as a ballerina. Okay, so that makes sense for this character, because the Pierrettes is the female equivalent of Pierrot, who is a stock character in Italian and later Parisian theater. So that clown figure, the sad clown, usually the Pierrot clown is one of the few performers in theater to perform without a mask. Pierrot will often have face paint, but no Venetian mask. Fascinating. Pierrot is also generally in white frills and lace, like Lily Subrowski's undergarments in this, oh. actually. She does wear sort of lacy white panties and bra when we first meet her. But this trope is a character who is constantly searching for love, specifically pining for this love of this one particular other stock character, who usually breaks his heart and leaves him for the Harlequin. So there we go. The Harlequin is back. Ah, that guy. The defining characteristic of Pierrot is his naivete, that he's often seen as a fool, often the butt of pranks, yet nonetheless trusting. And so I guess this is sort of the character here that does seem like she is in pursuit of something, maybe some love, maybe some sexual thrills, but is still somehow a little naive, even though she is apparently now an underage prostitute and is this tragic figure in our tale, and it's bringing in that Venetian theater themes. This would also contextualize why the dudes that she was with the night before and or this morning, the two businessmen who are Asian, when they first interrupt their sexual tryst, they pop up from behind the couch, and they're actually dressed in a curious way for their sexual tryst. They have face paint on and they have wigs. (laughs) In some ways we can say like, hey, this is, you know, it's probably some just kinky shenanigans that they're specifically into. But it's also worth noting that they're actually dressed in a very specific performative look that is associated with traditional Asian theater in the way that the Venetian masks are associated with traditional Italian theater. So... There we go. It's all, all right. a performance. Sex in this is all a hollow theatrical performance. Yeah. Deep. I get it. Yeah. Well, Bill, Dr. Bill, I should say, because he is a doctor. He is a doctor. That's true. I can't forget that. He's decided, well, okay, I can't talk to Nick because Nick is gone. That's a dead end. So he decides to go back up to the house, wait to the gates. Eventually, an old man comes over, gives him a letter. Bill reads it. It says, back the fuck off, dude. Get out of here. Weirdly, this is word for word what's in the novel. That does sometimes happen, at least from the English translation, obviously. Mm-hmm. The really strange thing, I mentioned at the top that there was a made-for-TV Italian version of the novella, in addition to the Austrian version, this Italian version from 1989. If you search for it online, you can find it, not on YouTube, but 
some other websites. A part that really threw me off, though, was around this point in the story, where the main character goes to the mansion. There's no one at the gate. The gate is open. He walks up into the house and just runs into the cult members from the night before who are still all in their robes and masks, just <laughs> kind of hanging out. And they see Party him and they seem to say, whoa, oh, this asshole's here. Okay, you know what? You you stand over there. Make sure he doesn't move. Get the people in here. Let's do this. And so now the cult members are forcing Bill to watch as they drag in the piano player and they beat the shit out of him. So the Nick Nightingale equivalent, we see him here in the mansion and they beat the ever loving shit out of him, throw him to the side. Now a bloody mess. The cult members then make Bill watch as they drag in the mysterious woman from last night, completely unmasked and forcibly inject drugs into her arm apparently causing an overdose while the main character is watching. Whoa. Really weird deviation from the source material there, but I guess Italian TV audiences in 1989 did not like ambiguity whatsoever. They just said, no, we need to know exactly what happened to those two people. And so this movie makes it very clear. Did the cult members abuse and uh, beat up these people that were involved with the party? Yes. Yes, definitely. They absolutely did that. So. I guess the question would be, did the writer and or director of that 1989 Italian film mysteriously die six days later because he unearthed the truth about (laughs) the clandestine elite? I didn't dig into Italian television news from 1989, so... Saying whatever Kubrick revealed, this guy did it first and more graphically, apparently, ten years prior. What up? Uh, yes. But Bill, hey, again, he's just feeling fucking useless, as he will throughout this entire film. I really cannot overstate the number of times that you, we see Bill, and really just the stamp you put on his forehead is fucking useless. He wants to fuck. Really wants to just do something to assert his masculinity. Yeah, he feels out of control, yeah. right? So he goes on a spiral. So Dark Knight of the Soul Part Yeah. Which isn't even necessarily night yet. But what we've seen so far was his Dark Knight of the Soul Eros edition. So when we brought up the Freud, Eros and Thanatos, that you can't have one without the other. The Eros Mm. is the life, the creation, the drive towards pleasure and desire. That's what he was on night one. He encountered a sex worker that he kind of failed to consummate anything with he went to a sex party he he was doing the whole gamut of what's out there for me to stick my dick in but he ended up not sticking his dick in anything but now as he goes back through new york and retraces his step he's experiencing the tension side of eros the thanatos the dark death principle that you can't have eros creation without the destruction and he learns that the hard way because first he tries to call up the chick who he failed to grief bang Marianne, the night before, yeah. and her fiance picks up instead. So he hangs up real quick because he's like, no, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> and then he goes and he buys the hooker cookies, which is super sweet. And so he comes to her place, showing up with his box of cookies with a little bow on it. Hey, I got cookies. Can we? <laughs> <laughs> we got cookies. And I, I did prepay, you know, for the services last night. So, you know, come on. In a time before Uber Eats, maybe bringing a chick cookies is the way into her bed, you know? 
That might actually be a solid working theory. So he arrives at her place. Her roommate is there instead. And her roommate is like, yeah, Domino's not here. And she's probably not going to be back for a while. She looks him over in his little pea coat and the cookies. She's like, oh, this tragic specimen of humanity. You must be Dr. Bill. The Bill? The Dr. Bill? And he's like, yeah. She's like, all right, come on in. And he's so horny at this point that he starts trying to make out with her roommate. He goes for it, and she kind of seems to reciprocate for a second, and then pulls back. It's like, okay, here's the deal. Domino, she got her test results back this morning, and she's HIV positive, and so since you were with her last night, like, let's not do this. And he has that sort of slap in the face, wake up call for a second, that Thanatos slapping him across the face, because in the 90s, HIV was super scary. Dude. It was pretty much a death sentence. Yeah. And so he has this moment of, wow, I just narrowly avoided that. I'm like, okay, Domino's the true victim here. Yeah, are we not worried about Domino at all? Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, he seems to be kind of sad for her, but at the same time, I'm like, whoa, narrative. Like, I'm so glad that this female sex worker could pop up to teach this asshole a life lesson of careless sexual commodification. But, you know, whatever. So he continues on, but he's learning that his pursuit for Eros can't be separated from the darkness, from the destruction, from the looming threat of death. Hmm. So he just goes and he buys a newspaper article that, subtle not subtle, just has lucky to be alive as the head title. In all fairness, it's a copy of the New York Post, and that really does seem like a headline the New York Post would do. It does, but it also seems like the headline that a dreamscape of his might have oh, because well, he's gotten a... this information and then he goes and he walks along a very deserted empty street which yeah sets and whatever but at the same time purposely empty we do not have other than one man who seems to be stalking him there is nobody on this greenwich village street it's weird that it is empty and deserted yeah. because the city not known for its deserted streets. <laughs> so one has to ask, recalling the dream of Nicole Kidman, so who seems to be tapped in to this weird liminal space that her husband is experiencing. Is this the deserted city that she dreamed about? Ooh. Are we still in that deserted city space? So we're mixing the dream and the reality again, especially uh, since he has this lucky to be alive thing that seems to be talking directly to him. He goes and he sits down in a cafe. He begins to read this paper. So whoever's on the front that's lucky to be alive, it is not the dead chick that he reads about <laughs> on the inside of the paper. <laughs> Because oh. she's not alive. So he, he flips to a, a like page six article about a dead beauty queen named Amanda. And this article is interesting because it says that she was friends with a bunch of influential high society people and had an affair with a dude, a high fashion designer named Leon Vitelli. Hey, that's the name of the guy who worked the post-production yeah so <laughs> we've mentioned his name earlier in this episode Kubrick's friend and ad on this film lending his name to the narrative interestingly real life leon vitelli is also credited as playing the dude in the red cloak at the sex party and why that's important is because Kubrick is all about his details and so he purposefully put the detail in this newspaper that leon vitelli is a high fashion designer that this woman was a known sort of mistress of and that leon vitelli is credited as our red cloak uh -huh. and so 
He's probably our number one red cloak suspect. Not real life Leon Vitelli, but fictitious Leon Vitelli within this world, because that's a very deliberate connection there. We also saw his fashion store earlier on. We mentioned that as well when you were kind of reading off the different stuff that was in this fake Greenwich set. Mm -hmm. Vitelli's fashion boutique makes it into Greenwich. So we have him kind of, yeah, stashed around the narrative. So he probably is our red cloak overseer. Although Ziegler is also a possibility, but we'll get to him in a bit. Mm -hmm. Also, this newspaper is actually weird. It has a lot of sentences that are doubled when you freeze frame it and you look at it. I think it does have sort of a dreamlike quality. What it also has is it calls the viewer's attention to very specific lines within the paper when it's just up there very quickly. And so it's Mm -hmm. telling us what to focus on. This is actually a magicianry trick as well that is used often with the whole pick a card thing. There's actually ways to push cards, but this is a pushing certain lines so that your eyes notice certain stuff first because of the repetition. Mm. And so that's the information that he really wants us to know. Right. Really pushing the idea that she had an overdose in her hotel room and she was friends with influential people and that one of those was a fashion designer named Leon Vitale. Mm -hmm. It's a subtle trick. I dig it. I dig it. At any rate, he gets information that Amanda is in the hospital. And the one time that the movie does not include a scene from the novella is kind of here, where in the novella, Friedland reads the paper, finds out that this mysterious woman was found unconscious at her hotel. So he goes to the hotel first to see if she's okay. The hotel clerk, in sort of a weird repeat of our hotel scene from earlier, explains to him, some weird, really scary looking guys came by asking for her and we went upstairs to check on her, but there was no answer or a door. We came back down and by then the two scary guys had vanished. And Alan Cummings character in the movie explains to Bill that Nick Nightingale was escorted by two scary looking guys. So it seems like these scary looking guys are showing up all different places, but I think it's wisely removed here because it's a case of you're doing A to B to C to D to E, and all you really need to do is A to E. So cut out the fat and off you go. Also, those two guys that are mentioned, they do pop up throughout this narrative already. Mm-hmm. They were at Ziegler's party and they are in a couple other places. We actually haven't seen all of their places yet, but there does seem to be these two dudes in suits that appear in a lot of scenes. So they're, <laughs> they're kind of like the Ishtar star, the star of Ishtar. Like, they're there. Just search for them. Keep an eye out. You're going to see them. Where's Waldo, those two dudes in those suits? But Dr. Bill goes to the hospital that Amanda Curran was said to be staying at. And he gets in because he's a doctor, you know, shows that flashes that badge like I'm a fucking doctor. You need to let me see this woman. A hospital staff says, uh, yeah, she's actually dead. Oh, well, then I need to see her corpse. Well, you're a doctor. I guess that's cool. Yeah. Gets him down into the morgue. Goes down to the morgue and and he has a look. And he keeps having a look. He looks longer and harder at this corpse. Yeah, he keeps getting closer and closer to the corpse face, and it's like he's about to kiss her, and this poor morgue attendant is off to the side, <laughs> kind of looking down at something where you could just tell that he's like, they do not pay me enough for this shit. Like, what is this dude what doing with this corpse? What the fuck is going on? But yeah, Chick's dead. He looks at her and apparently somewhat recognizes her as mm-hmm. 
the chick that he had helped in Ziegler's wonderful Gustav Klimt-inspired bathroom mm-hmm. earlier in the film that had OD'd on a snowball. And is also wondering, is this the woman from last night, too? I don't really know. I can't tell because the only women that exist in New York are tall, white redheads. (laughs) And so they all look alike and we can't tell them apart. Ah, and as he's walking out, he gets a call on his cell phone from Ziegler. So he goes to the most gorgeous goddamn billiard room of all time. This place is glorious. It's full of the blue light from the streets that we got from all the other night scenes, this glorious red pool table, the beautiful green lamps that are on top of the pool table. It's just, it's all working for me, man. And a scene unfolds. This whole scene goes on for 17 minutes of these two talking. Interesting. It doesn't feel like a 17-minute scene, though. It doesn't. No, it doesn't feel that long. It definitely feels like a longer scene, but definitely not 17 minutes. Yeah, that surprises me. Yeah. And as it goes on, Ziegler basically reveals, look, Bill, we need to be honest with each other here. I know what the fuck happened to you last night. I know everything. I was there. You were in way over your head and you're just going around acting like a fucking lunatic. I know you went to the house. I had you followed. I know you went to the hotel because I've been keeping an eye on you because you, sir, got into some shit you should not have gotten into. Also, you're not stealthy. You're not stealthy at all, you useless sack of shit. Sidney Pollock, I have to commend him. He's not an actor by trade. Sidney Pollock by trade is a director. That's his main thing. Really just knocking it out of the park here. He's coming across with this really wild blend of what seems like legitimate concern for Bill, but also there's a real air of menace in everything that he's doing as he walks about here. I think the camera work is selling that a lot too, because anytime we have a shot of Ziegler, it's a medium shot, kind of knee to head, sometimes referred to as the cowboy shot. But anytime that we cut back to Bill, we're always really close in his face and the background is blurred out because of the way that that shot is composed. But Ziegler is always in focus. The rest of his surroundings are in focus. The camera is moving with him, following him as the object of power. So it's always a progression of getting closer to Bill as information is revealed. And throughout this entire scene, the only time that there's a close-up on Ziegler is one line when Bill says, was the woman I saw in the morgue today the woman I saw at the party last night? Then it cuts close into Ziegler so he can just say, she was, and that's it. That's the one time we get closer to Ziegler at all than we have to Bill the entire scene. Interesting. Another thing that's curious about what Ziegler is doing in this scene is that behind him, he has a red felt pool table and he keeps doing these weird things with his hands where he keeps taking the white cue ball and moving it around in a circular motion on top of this red felt in the same hand motion as the red felt cloaked dude moved the smoke about during the ritual. And then in his other hand, he keeps tapping the, what's that blue chalk stuff for your pool cues? So he has that in his hand and he keeps tapping that on the side of the pool table in the same Mm -hmm. staccato beat as the staff hit. So it's curious here because once again, nothing in Kubrick is by accident. So it's the longest shot film ever (laughs) and had so many takes. So 
it does seem to be a deliberate evocation here of the red-cloaked figure and his hand movements, implying that this dude, Ziegler, might also be a candidate for our dude in the red cloak, even though we're pretty sure it's Vitelli, because there's a lot more evidence to point to him, but reasonable doubt, I guess. Just that little hint of, well, I guess you can't say for sure. But there were two guests at the party that more people tend to think of as Ziegler, who's in, like, about to mask Mm -hmm. and... He's standing next to a, presumably a woman who's in a female jester mask. And they both turn and see Bill when he moves in to the room and they nod to him. So that seems maybe like Ziegler and his wife. But he does seem to have subconsciously interiorized these ritual movements Mm -hmm. that he's performing here in front of a red felt pool table. So it's it's kind of a nice little callback one way or the other. But he's also the one that tells us, come on, Bill. The whole thing that you saw, it was staged. It was a charade. This whole thing of her sacrificing herself that you've been jerking yourself off with. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's a solid put down. Thank you. Yeah, she didn't die. She's got her brains fucked out. Like nothing that hadn't (laughs) happened to her before. Whatever. So the uh, misogyny and problematic possibilities of, you know, sexual hierarchies aside, if they're not consensual or what have you. Yeah. It does seem like a larger probability of what happened, because this is a question of Occam's razor versus gaslighting, right? Because once again, why kill good snatch for no Uh. good reason, right? Because you just have to find more hookers to show up to your clandestine sex parties. And yeah, sure, there's a lot of them. But once again, why? There's, There's really no reason to sacrifice her. So she possibly did die of an overdose. Like the girl definitely died. And yet, as Ziegler pointed out, Dr. Bill told her himself in the bathroom earlier that if she didn't stop putting so much stuff up her nose, she was probably not going to wake up next time. Yeah. So perhaps she did indeed do this to herself. And it's a coincidence of timing. But yeah, it's that weird, Mm -hmm. ambiguous area. So maybe he's just gaslighting him like, yeah, we totally killed her. But like, why would we, buddy? Why would we? Basically, Ziegler has finished putting Bill down and saying, yeah, you're out of your league. Get the fuck out of here. Or doesn't say that to him, but just tells him. Relax, man. Forget about it all. And I guess that's enough for Bill because he goes home. He's had a really rough time. He needs to unwind, goes into his kitchen, gets out a good old watery American Bud Light. Which was hilarious to me. Budweiser? Yeah. If any time seems like it's time for hard liquor, this would be it, buddy. But no. Right. So he goes into the bedroom. Alice is asleep. And the mask is on her pillow. It's like, oh, shit, the mask is there. Most theories say that Alice found the mask and she knows something's kind of up. And so she Mm -hmm. puts it on the pillow, kind of saying, like, we need to talk. Mm -hmm. Other possibilities are those two creepy clandestine men snuck in and put it there as a threat. But probably Alice. Now, Bill sees this and he breaks down and he wakes her up and he's crying. Surprisingly, Tom Cruise, not that hot when he cries. (laughs) And so he wakes up Alice and he tells her everything. He's like, I'm going to tell you everything. And turns out Nicole Kidman also not that hot when she cries either because she cries too back at him. I don't know. I think she's kind of got a, it's not like Demi Moore pretty crying, but she, I think she looks okay. Soul situation's just not working for me. That's fine. Like they, they have each other. He tells her off screen exactly what apparently went down this Odyssey and she's a little sad about it. 
I'm like, well, granted, it's a weird tale, but really... All he really did was not have sex with a bunch of people mm-hmm. and overpaid for it is really kind of what happened. <laughs> Which is even worse, days. really, to overpay for not having sex. That's Yeah, oh. but apparently, you know, he went on a journey. So, yeah, she's like, okay, this is a lot of information, but there's no time to dwell on orgy death sex cults because there's Christmas shopping to do. Oh, we got to spend some money. Get yeah, back to the that. ups and downs of marriage and parenting. You know, so they take their child to this toy store. Mm-hmm. And this is a very interesting scene to end on because, one, this kid is running all around in this capitalist playground and <laughs> she's really excited by this Barbie. She picks it up and she shows it and she's like, Mommy, look at this. And Alice is like, Yeah, good for you. Because the grooming of this child is complete. Because we haven't really talked about this kid and her role in this film so far. So we'll talk about it here, that throughout this film, this kid has been in the background a lot, but every time she pops up, it's in this very interesting grooming way to turn her into the next little Alice. My favorite part is at some point, Alice is sitting with her kid to teach her math, and it seems like, oh, we're just doing the homework. But the math problem is so great, because the math problem is Steve has a dollar thirty. Mark has a dollar forty-five. How much more money does Mark have than Steve? Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, amazing! Like we're teaching this child these little gold-digging math problems, right? This idea of okay, like which which man has more money, and how much more money does he have? And this is an important value system. And there's a moment where Tom Cruise's character, Doctor Bill, is looking at Alice and the kid at the kitchen table doing this math problem, and he seems to get it in that moment. Like, oh man! And that's when he actually goes and embarks on Dark Knight of the Soul Part 2, because this is the world that he lives in, is this very cultivated, always striving to be part of the upper class and the women's role in this narrative. Kid is also a redhead, is that women are these sexual commodified objects that pretty much are prostitutes in one way or the other. They're either marrying in a certain social strata, like our little Hungarian said at the very beginning, right? Women get married traditionally so that they can lose their virginities, have that social acceptance and security, and then go off and fuck other people. Mm-hmm. And the, the kid is kind of growing up like that too, within this house space, like drawn to these Barbies, learning her gold digging math problems always asking her father if she can have something and him always telling her no. It's it's a very interesting background dynamic. But grooming is complete here because this kid is really excited about this Barbie and the baby stroller. Those are the two things that she picks up of interest within this toy store. And what is curious, the stroller that she's very interested in, we've seen this stroller before. This stroller was actually outside of Domino's apartment when he goes in to hook up with her at the first time. So it was just kind of hanging out there. So once again, these weird subliminal dream imageries that almost make it seem like everything's kind of getting mixed together. But Domino also had a stuffed tiger on her bed. Remember I told you that stuffed tiger was going to come back. Oh, Chekhov's tiger. There's a pile of them in this toy store. The exact same stuffed tiger, just a whole bunch of them piled up ready to be sold. And it's weirdly dark in that moment because you're like, okay, so... What are you saying? That there's this pile of these tigers ready to go and they will get bought and be gifted to all these little girls for Christmas who will grow up to become hookers, get AIDS and die? Like, what are we going for, Stanley Kubrick? But it's a it's a curious kind of life cycle 
very dark institutional life cycle view of we gift these things to children and they are children at some point, but they are going to grow up to be the participants within this institution. And right now, there is no escape for those children. And then there's also a stack of boxes of a game called The Magic Circle. And that's uh. kind of fun, too, because you're like, okay, that's also purposely put there because <laughs> there is that whole thing, right, about this cult that had been doing those magic circle rituals. And remember, the Hellfire Club was initially traced to this idea of the clandestine magic circle. So there's a, a very purposely cultivated toy store here. Also, those two dudes that were at Ziegler's party and that, as I mentioned, are kind of a Where's Waldo search thing throughout <laughs> this film. Like, where can we spot these two suited dudes? They are very prominently featured in this toy store. They are in the background. They are hanging out. And you're like, what do we do with that? Why are you here? Are you stalking them? Are you, like, just happen to be Christmas shopping at the same place? Like, whoa. So it's that paranoia, the dreamscape paranoia. So we end on a discussion of dreaming and reality. I have the clip of this conversation. Full disclosure, I did trim the spaces between words a little bit because you could drive a goddamn semi-truck through the queues in this oh, movie. Oh, I do that every time we play quotes. Right. Okay. So I just want, just want to put that out there. I think we should be grateful. Grateful that we've managed to survive through all of our adventures, whether they were real or only a dream. Are you sure of that? Only as sure as I am that the reality of one night, let alone that of a whole lifetime, can ever be the whole truth. And no dream is ever just a dream. The important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. Forever. Mm, let's, let's not use that word. Yeah. It frightens me. But I do love you. And you know, there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. What's that? Fuck. The last line of the last Kubrick movie. Fuck. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that in addition to just ending the movie on such a, a crass line, Kubrick is also ending this scene on just a simple shot, reverse shot of Nicole and Tom, some of the most basic filmmaking editing that you can do. And the master of cinema is just saying, yeah, this is all we need. We're good. Yeah. That, that, sometimes it's true. Sometimes all you need is shot, reverse shot. Don't break that 180 line and you're good to go. But yeah, a lot to unpack with that. The reality of one night, let alone an entire lifetime, is never the full truth. A dream is never just a dream. We're awake now for forever. Don't say forever. That <laughs> word, for, I, that's actually my favorite part of the whole thing is Alice saying, no, 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 let's not talk forever right now. Let's, uh, let's keep focused in the moment, Bill. Yeah. 
And so what they seem to be saying here is basically, as I mentioned, this movie is not about trying to unpack the dream from the reality of it. It's just supposed to make sense on a subliminal level. They went through a journey and they've come out the other end and they've had a false awakening. So in Kubrick's own words, he did once state that the book that this is based off of is one that explores the sexual ambivalence of a happy marriage and tries to equate the importance of sexual dreams and might-have-beens with reality. The book opposes the real adventures of a husband and the fantasy adventures of his wife, and asks the question, is there a serious difference between dreaming a sexual adventure and actually having one? This movie, then, he goes on to say, is basically an adaptation of that idea, <laughs> that core central concept of the book of, is there a difference between fantasizing and doing? Well, in a divorce court, yes. But it is this interesting, yeah, space of exploration of interior fantasy landscapes and to what extent those are important in personhood and reality. And yet, there's something that's kind of hollow about this ending to a lot of people, because they're like, what are we supposed to do with that? <laughs> what are we yeah. supposed to do with this idea that fantasy and reality might kind of be the same or not really matter in the grand scheme of things? Or this idea that forever is scary and especially ending on the, well, the only thing we can do now is fuck, right? And people are like, clearly... Kubrick must have died before he had his final cut. That's where the rumors for his yeah. death being something before he was ready to show his films. Like, surely this is not where the film ended. Now, this is where the film ended. So many other Kubrick films end on this very clear and lucid moment. I say that ironically because his films definitely do not end on clear and lucid moments. <laughs> Let's unpack this, and it's going to take a little while. But one thing to mention first is that this idea that... How it ends is that they have to go home and just fuck. That is actually how Ovid's final section of the Ars Amatoria, The Art of Love, ends. The final section is, and so to bed, which is basically like, all right, now you guys have all learned stuff, so go out there and fuck. She had already taken plays out of Ovid's book with the revealing of the sailor trying to make her lover jealous ah, instead yes, of complacent, yes. right? So now she's just still following Ovid, basically. She's like... We're doing the Ovid playbook here. Like, let's go home and fuck. And so that's, that's a little bit where that comes from. But somehow supposed to be this idea that they are enlightened now, that they learned something from this dark night of the soul. Only problem is, is that they actually haven't, right? It's a false awakening that they are probably going to go back into the same pattern that they were before. And they haven't actually progressed anywhere. They haven't learned anything about what they actually want, what would sexually fulfill them, how they feel about monogamy. So this is a hollow feeling ending for a reason, because they have reached a hollow awakening conclusion. And why can we read it this way? Well, the time has come to finally talk about the end of the rainbow and what Zarathustra thus spoke about, according to Nietzsche. Okay, so if we recall way, way back. <laughs> remember back, remember when. Fortnights ago, yeah. That these two women came to Dr. Bill and they told him that they wanted to take him where the rainbow ends. And I mentioned that one of the theories of that is that it is a Frederick Nietzsche, thus spoke Zarathustra reference. Uh, if we want a refresher. Ladies, where exactly? Are we going? 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Where the rainbow ends. Where the rainbow ends. Don't you want to go where the rainbow ends? Well, now that <laughs> depends where that is. Well, let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. Right. Okay, so where does the rainbow end? According to Frederick Nietzsche in his prologue of thus spoke Zarathustra, he also tells us that I will show them the rainbow and the stairway to the Superman. And he goes on to explain that basically the rainbow is what we are in and at the rainbow's end is the Superman, the overmensch, the exalted human, as it were. So first, to contextualize, we're going to do a really, really core breakdown of this book, Zarathustra. This is a really long work. It's a very dense philosophical work by Nietzsche. He wrote it in random bursts of inspiration over a 10-day period, and he didn't really go back and revise. So a lot of different sections kind of contradict each other a little bit, but it's still a really fun read. Nietzsche doesn't have time for your plebeian revising. Come on, man. Yeah. So first, it is important to contextualize that there is a historical dude named Zarathustra, who is an Iranian prophet and founder of Zoroastrianism. According to Nietzsche, he saw Zarathustra as being one of the first men to establish the moral system. And this is the system which eventually evolves into Judeo-Christian morals. And so Nietzsche set out to demolish the idea of this morality system in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Basically, fictitious Zarathustra within this philosophical work has been up on a mountain meditating for a really long time and realizes that the moral restraints that he had initially established way back in the day were misguided and wrong. So now he needs to come and speak again and set things right. So Z-Man, he's going to come down from the mountains. He's like, okay, I finally understand that all mankind is just a bridge between animal and this thing called the overman. And thus humanity, it's just this middle stage, you know, it's something that man can overcome and we can become the next best thing, the overman, which is someone who is free from all the prejudices and moralities of human society and who can create his own values and purposes. You might remember, perhaps, to Kubrick fans, that Thus Spoke Zarathustra is the title of the most recognizable track from 2001 A Space Odyssey, as is the role of the Overman in 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> so this is not the only film that Kubrick draws very, very heavily from this work for. But Nietzsche talks about this idea of the will to power, and that is the fundamental drive of all things, that there is will to power where there is life, and even the strongest living things will risk their lives for more power. That suggests that the will to power is stronger than the will to survive. So this, for Nietzsche, explained why people strive for aesthetics, money, mastery, over things like happiness or the will to keep on living. That basically power is, is the thing. So this dude named Alfred Adler in the turn of the century in Vienna mm. is going to... Always in Vienna. Wow. Yeah. Have this idea to incorporate this into a concept of individual psychology. If you remember from our Dangerous Method episode, there's a lot of stuff going on in Austria <laughs> around the time when it came to psychotherapy and the development of psychotherapy. And there are going to be some contrasting views at the time in terms of what it is that makes man drive forward in life. And Sigmund Freud, as we mentioned, is going to have his pleasure principle, his eros, his thanatos and his eros. 
a different dude named Viktor Frankl is going to be all about this thing called logotherapy, which is the will to find meaning in life. So it's that constant search and strive for meaning. And Alfred Adler comes along and he's like, okay, so I read this Nietzsche guy and I think he's onto something. I think that the will to power is really what drives people psychologically. So this is curious to point out because this debate is happening around the time that dream novel is circulating, right? In the same region, mm. the dream novel is circulating. Right. So this was an ethos that was very big at the time in Vienna and certainly influenced a lot of Viennese writers at the time. So I'm assuming that this guy is probably was no exception that it's that kind of permeated idea. And both this novel and this movie seem to side a little bit more with Adler and Nietzsche that power is the driving force of this narrative. Not necessarily pleasure and pain, because this movie is largely pleasureless, right? There's a lot of sex in this movie, sort of, but there's not really pleasure. And that was what a lot of critics were complaining about when it came out in the 90s, was I thought this was supposed to be an erotic thriller, and I this doesn't feel erotic to me. And it's like, well, because it's not really, eroticism's not really the point, right? Yeah. They're looking for something else. Yeah. There's also very little meaning in this. We don't find a greater revelation of what it means to be alive. And the narrative doesn't really care about that. And Alice doesn't really care about that. She's like, hey, we didn't learn anything from this. We just need to accept that this is what happened. We need to go home and fuck. And so the power really seems to be the struggle here, the will to power, which is not necessarily power in a dominant sense, right? It's more the power to have control of one's own narrative and one's own life. And so we have Dr. Bill who feels very powerless, very emasculated throughout most of the narrative. We have Alice who feels very powerless in her housewife role. We play around with the idea of who holds the power in this secret organization sex ritual and higher society. It's just all plays at different manifestations of power and who wields it, who holds it, and where do these people fit within that structure. So for the people then that subscribe to this will to power, true will to power can only be achieved, according to Nietzsche and thus spoke Zarathustra, by the superman, the overman. Once you've reached the end of the rainbow, where the rainbow ends and have then crossed that rainbow bridge and gone up a level to superman status. Because the supermen are the ones that know how to fully manifest their will, fully live life exactly how they want to be living it. It's a very godless philosophy in some ways where the overman is as high as it gets. And so if we think about that cult where we mentioned that their rituals seemed hollow, they weren't praying to any higher gods, they didn't seem to be getting magic from it. Mm -hmm. They might be as high as there is, perhaps, <laughs> or they're playing at being as high as there is. Because once again, we don't know their lives. Mm -hmm. But if the overman is as high as there is, there's nowhere for the higher man to go or the overman to go. And so Nietzsche, his second point was that there's this thing called eternal recurrence, that life is just going to go on and on and on. And you're stuck in the same patterns over and over and over again. Somebody who realizes that and goes like, yeah, that's cool. I'm ready to do this all again. They're a little bit closer to the overman status. Hmm. If you're like, holy shit, I have to do this all again. Like, I don't want to do this all again. Then you're not living your will to power, right? Because you're apparently not in control because whatever it is you're doing is apparently something you don't want to be doing. <laughs> Dr. Bill and Alice at the end, 
they have that recurrence. They're like, okay, we're about to do this all again. We're just going to fucking start the cycle over again. Are they ready to do that? Do they feel great about that? Or do they not feel so great about that? The ending of Zarathustra, it's curious in that its ending clause is actually very similar to the end that we get in Eyes Wide Shut. So the final little roundelay that we get in Zarathustra when he concludes that He's got to embrace this eternal recurrence, and he's prepared to do it. Says the final thing at the close. Oh man, take care. What does the deep midnight declare? I was asleep. From a deep dream, I awoke and swear. The world is deep, deeper than day had been aware. Deep is its woe, joy deeper yet than agony. Woe implores go, but all joy wants eternity. Wants deep, wants deep eternity. So even before I explain what this final paragraph means, some words might seem in common that they were asleep and now they're awake, right? This claim of I was asleep, but now I'm awake. And this concept of eternity forever, (laughs) this idea that there is a forever, that there is this eternity. And Zarathustra, having reached sort of overman status or close to He's okay with that. He's prepared for that because he realizes that there is joy and there is sorrow and that these two things are intimately connected, like Eros and Thanatos. We can't wish for an eternity of joy without wishing for the suffering that accompanies this joy. And an overman, he's chill with this. He's like, nah, I'm I'm prepared. I have enough of my will to power to make that work. But... Why then we know that Alice's awakening is a false one is because forever still scares her. She doesn't like that word. So she is not prepared to (laughs) suffer this eternity or this eternal reoccurrence. She thinks she's awake, but no, you have to have both parts, right? You have to be awake and you have to be prepared for forever. She is not. Hence, false awakening. (laughs) Okay, so we basically end our film with this false awakening. That's seems to be actually a regurgitation, a a false regurgitation of the final paragraph of the spoke Zarathustra. Fuck. Yeah. No, yeah, with a little Ovid mixed in of like, (laughs) okay, let's just go fuck. So Bill is not the Uberman. He's not the Overman. He hasn't reached that status. No. He has learned, well, maybe a little, but he still has a long way to go and figure out the female interior landscape and having (laughs) any power whatsoever or being thrilled about the prospect of likely repeating the entire cycle of jealousy and martial questioning. Although I would ask, are the red cloak dudes then overmen? That is one of the questions for the Zarathustra readers. And there's not really an answer to this because maybe, maybe they're happy in their cycle of Dionysian power, prepared to repeat it forever with no regrets. Or maybe they're going through the hollow motions as well of this will to power without yet achieving it. Maybe that is the hollow ritual that they're performing is trying to become these overmen, but not succeeding. And we don't know because we don't know their lives. We don't know their interiors. We can't really speculate on this. It could go either way. I've noticed that there's a tendency to read this film as a dark critique of these clandestine abuses of power. And I see that reading, especially if this is a will to power and they're trying to exercise that will, they're trying to exercise that power, and it's coming at the cost of other people, then that is very bleak. This idea then that how men who become gods in an otherwise godless world turn into a twisted, dark orgy of Illuminati conspiracy and sex trafficking. 
A more positive take, however, might be that these are a bunch of new age gods just having a good time. Reading I don't see very often, but it's out there, right? Like, that's a possible interpretation, that they have freed themselves of moral and institutional restraints. They are the next level of man. So it really depends on the details of their organizations, and we don't get them. So really, I think that's why this film has so many multiple legit interpretations, is because overall it's dealing with a lot of dreamlike imagery. It's taking from a lot of very abstract sources. Because as confused as you might be still on the Nietzsche Zarathustra philosophy, reading the whole thing, it's not going to make it any clearer. <laughs> to take my word on that. Like, this is as bare bones as it gets, and you're, mm -hmm. but what if X, Y, Z? You're like, no. That's the thing with philosophy. You can always find holes and you can poke at them oh, and they sure. will collapse. But this is, you know, this is basically what Nietzsche is saying. So if we make a fictitious work that interprets Zarathustra in the following ways, you know, that's, that's basically what Eyes Wide Shut is doing. And it, yeah, has all of this dreamlike imagery, weird philosophical inspirations and resources. So interpretations are just endless and abound for Eyes Wide Shut. There certainly is not one single answer we will say, on how to interpret this film, because we mm. do not have all of the pieces. No, no. Yeah, so this is like a really long episode, long-winded way of saying, like, we don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a great metaphor for life itself. You can go through the entire thing, and at the end of it all, you just say, what did we learn? I really don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like... It depends on how you view the world and the institution and masked Venetian sex orgies. So what kind of orgy do you want to be, I guess? Be the orgy that you want to see in the world. <laughs> be the orgy that you want to change in the world. Wait, I don't. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Top five. <laughs> my honorable mention will go out to the book I use for a lot of my research on this. That book, again, is... Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the making of his final film from Robert P. Kolker and Nathan Abrams came out in 2019. So it's one of the more recent books on the making of the film and very informative. My number five goes out to all the sets. Just all sorts of great things going into the sets in the film. Yeah, my honorable mention goes out to Alan Cumming because <laughs> fuck yeah, you needed to be in this more. Yeah. And all of the music on this, the haunting mm, chants yeah. and the Venetian waltzes, it's a great score. Really great score. My actual number five goes out to Tom Cruise. He was bringing it for me. Yeah. Who's your number four? Number four is the costumes in this. Wonderful masks, our wonderful evening gowns, those gorgeous tuxedos. It's just all very good. And uh, I want that red cloak for Halloween sometime. Fair enough. My number four, the Russian costume guy. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His performance. It was the best thing in this movie. Super great. Who's your number three? My number three is just the cast. There's no weak link in there. Obviously, as you said, the best actor in this entire movie is Alan Cumming. My number three is Stanley Kubrick. This is a Stanley Kubrick film. You don't say. And it is masterfully woven together and everything has a purpose and a place. So yeah, excellent job. Who's your number two? Number two is all the camera work, the cinematography. I didn't mention, but Pete Cavacuti, the steady cam operator for this film, had to be millimeter accurate with some of the camera moves he was doing in that orgy scene and the dance sequence in all of that. So all the very intricate camera work that was being done and all the lights that were going into it and the countless camera tests they did all paid off. So thank you. You're number two. My number two are the sets and the set builders. 
don't listen to what the 90s critics said. That shit looked like Greenwich. <laughs> Again, they went in with that opinion. So, yeah, you know, it's... it was so detailed. Amazing, amazing build job. Who's your number one? Number one is our boy, the Coob, Stanley Kubrick, the man who brought it all together, the man who worked for the better part of 40 years to try and make this film happen and finally got there by God and left us with this amazing, challenging, and fascinating film to overanalyze to our heart's content. Yeah, my number one is the cinematography and the lighting, specifically the lighting. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. No other film is lit like this Mm -hmm. with pretty much Christmas lights. (laughs) And that's very interesting. It makes everything look very warm, very hazy, very soft. And the color variation of the palette is incredible. That's a nice thing. That's some good visual filmmaking. So, yeah, that is Eyes Wide Shut in part Eyes Wide Shut. (laughs) We may have missed a few things. Quite a journey there. Yeah. So, But, folks, join us on that journey. We are on social media. Find us on Twitter, at Cinema of Cruelty. Find us on Instagram, at Cinema of Cruelty. And also find us on Reddit, where I'm always posting our episodes, posting trivia for them. And you know what? As I always say, well, actually us. If we got something wrong... Let us know. Leave a comment on the post for the episode. We research all this very carefully, and if there's something that we got wrong or we missed, we want to know. Don't be shy. Yeah, the truth is out there, guys. The truth is out there. Absolutely. All right, so we have reached an end. Perhaps we have not yet made it to that sweet rainbow's end, but we have gone through the dark nights, plural, of the soul to see again the dawn, which means it is time to safe word out and face the morning after. Safe word out. Stars shining bright above you. Night breezes seem to whisper, I love you. Birds singing in the sycamore tree. Dream a little dream of me. Say nighty night and kiss me. Just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me While I'm alone and blue as can be Dream a little dream of me that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!